With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. It's good to come back for 2024 and have my partner in crime with me, Marty Gibson. How are you, mate? Ah, buenas tardes, amiga. Ah. Um, uh, muy bien. Yeah, How muy bien. Uh, Como esta? Uh, good. It was amazing. Nice. It was it was amazing. It's nice to always have a long protracted extended break, whether you stay at home or go away. I haven't done it for ooh, probably about uh, pretty close to ten years. So we it's uh, to have that long away, but it was good. It was yeah, something nice. that was well needed, and uh, uh, you know we did it because our children are fast approaching what I call that. Time to for the baby birds to leave the nest. They're they're just both finishing up their last year or, or so of high school, and and I just know before we know it, they will be gone. So we thought, yeah. right, we need to do something and get some memories and family time down, and and it was good, and it was nice to disconnect, not only for me and my husband, but um, the kids. You know, there was no hours on end on devices or anything like that. It was, you know, sitting around and cooking food and going for swims and having conversations and looking at art and history and trying to speak Spanish exceptionally poorly in places where well, no English is spoken, you know, things like that. Uh, well, that sounds great. I mean, yeah, I, I had a very, you know, I did do a little bit of tripping around, but did a fair bit of um, – of uh, just staying home as well and going to the beach for a swim and jumping hmm. out when the uh, bronze whalers were cruising by and yeah and jumping yeah. back in. Exactly. No, it's just good. It's good. And it's funny this time of year, isn't it? You know, February is, is one of those flux times because the kids go back to school initially and then the uni kids go back. Businesses and parliamentarians sort of shake off um, their sort of summer vibe and you get onto the the business of the year, the business of doing business. And Being busy. Yes. And I have to admit, first week, week back, the retox back into New Zealand media has that's been. That's a good word. Yeah, you coined it the other day for me. I thought, Marty, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. However, I'm, I'm I, I really did that. And I've said it uh, I've said it on the political panel. I, I just, I've got quite a stack of, of papers I haven't even opened and as I read it, I, I mean, as I, I'm reading a lot of um, just the, the journalists' takes on various things, I, I'm concentrating or focusing in, in my own mind um, the extent to which they've become the problem mm. uh, in their um, in their characterising anyone who goes against the conventional approved viewpoint a, a, as being all sorts of racist and and uh, attributing all sorts of ulterior motives and creating these straw man arguments mm. rather than being brave enough to just have the chats you mm. know keep breathing while it gets difficult and and keep the good faith mm. these um, it was quite interesting i definitely i've seen actually a polarization with um some journalists in the sense that there are some that are going more in that direction almost like 
they can't believe that their team has lost and they're trying to sort of reconcile uh, what's going on. And in their mania, they're, they're sort of <laughs> furthering the case that many of us have placed um, that in the likes of Winston Peters has said that the Public Interest Journalism Fund has certainly exacerbated the problem. And then I'm pleasantly surprised when every now and then I actually see journalism happening and mm. I, th- I think to myself, actually, I, sh- I should actually cherish that, especially in the legacy format. And we have, s- and I've seen little snippets of that just yeah. this week. Fran uh, Sullivan, exa- not this week, but I remember last year, towards the end of the year, she got a little bit of uh, steel in her spine and was willing to actually speak to some of the real reasons. Um, she danced that, around it this this week, but she yes, exactly. And um, yeah. Thomas Coughlin. Tracy Watkins was another interesting one. You pulled out uh, her mm-hmm. Sunday Star Times editorial, and she was talking about how how good it had been to get out of the press gallery, and it uh, it actually maybe it wasn't her, but they they kind of get close. My perspective on how we in the media cover politics has changed, though it's been a gradual ev- evolution. Journalists who end up in the press gallery are usually at the top of the game. They're also hugely competitive. Uh, They hate being scooped and they hate being the last cab off the rank. That creates its own sense of urgency and fear of missing out on what other media are reporting. None of that really lends itself to nuance, does it? No. And and that's especially at this juncture, it would be nice if they changed gear. Mm. Well, one of the changing gears was uh, an interview done, I think, off the tiles. It's called with Thomas Coughlin, which is a political reporter for NZME. And he spoke to Dr. Elizabeth Rata, Professor Elizabeth Rata. And for starters, he had her on the podcast, mm. which was brilliant because outside of uh, the wonderful Leighton and, and uh, Reality Check, she very rarely gets a mention. And she, she Thomas got a lot of truth in that 40 wow. or so minutes. But then since then, I've seen a couple of pieces written by him that you can, it's almost like you can see a little switch in his brain. You know, like, mm. has she tilted him just enough that he's starting to see angles that he wasn't quite seeing before? Or has it been the fact that he has spoken to somebody who has actually very eloquently and gently pushed back on him that's actually allowed him to realise that, oh, I can actually look at two sides of a story yeah. or an equation, and he's and he's starting to do that. Hopefully it continues. There's a lazy way of, of looking at the world, that especially, I mean, it's natural enough when you're in your 20s, mm. and especially if you're in your 20s and you've gone through an education system that uh, equates having certain opinions with being a good person rather than... Um, taking a sometimes oppositional view just to test a theory. And so, you know, if, if you are not all in on, um, you know, New Zealand borrowing tens of billions of dollars and sending it overseas to nuclear undeveloping nations that are still building coal-fired power, power plants, you hate the environment and don't want anything there for our kids and don't care if we all burn. You, you know, uh, if you uh, question uh, whether maybe it's time to have parliament de- define uh, what the principles of the ch- treaty are rather than leaving it to the Waitangi Tribunal and activist judges. You hate Māori and you just want to oppress them and destroy the treaty. And mm. and so there are still so many of those. And, yeah, if you if you give a contrary 
uh, opinion to that or, or inject something that's not um, it's seen as beyond the pale. There's, there's going to be a, uh, a bit of squealing and a bit of fur is going to fly, but um, once you get through it, if you keep your cool mm. and keep gently asking questions, um, yeah, it, it opens up uh, a more nuanced, that more nuanced mm. discussion that we need to have as a maturing nation. Yeah, and I mean, we so that kind of segues into Friday's political agenda, which many people listen to. And uh, look, I can tell you guys, I mean, <laughs> Marty and I recording it, it's, it was it was certainly not, um, it was difficult, you know, I mean, because mm. we we're all trying to have conversations. All four of us actually respect each other greatly. Um, and just so you're all aware, we all left um, the conversation in, in a good place. But, you know, that's part of these conversations is that, there is a lot of passion there, and Donna brought a tremendous amount of passion to that conversation. And she, uh, and she reflects a lot of people that feel that way around, you know, the this principle of treat the principles bill uh, that ACT has actually bought. And it's interesting. One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about because we just ran out of time and we wanted to get onto the COVID inquiry, but. One of the things that I have certainly seen is uh, whenever you've got emotions uh, around something and also to a lot of historical grievance, and both you and I don't dispute that in any way, shape or form, it's easy to actually take passion, grievance and then fear and focus it onto a certain um, issue. And I think that those who are in the managerial class of Māori, which um, Abrata talks about. The Willie Jackson class. The Willie Jackson class. Is the Joel Sharptons. Well, in the, in the John Tamahiri class, I think yeah. he is certainly up to his eyeballs in this. Uh, they have gone and very masterfully put a focus on Seymour and this bill, and they have fed a lot of disinformation into Māori about what the meanings of that actually are and are stoking fear and anger. And so the conversation isn't actually had. And mm. it, it's it has it's been done. They and it's interesting, you know, they they learned all of this during COVID and they became yeah. very good at it. And they've gone and taken all the skills that they've learned and they've applied. And all it to the this. cash that they made jabbing uh, their uh, their people. Well, I mean, so Matt, to that point, Matt Rippett wrote that piece around the Waipiriata Trust, and mm. if you didn't catch it, um, they had did uh, OIA requests. They have uh, the cost of what is earned. Now, remember, the Waipiriata Trust is a charity. It is chaired by Tamahere, and it started around, and of course, Winston has had him in his crosshairs for a while. There is an investigation going on, but the upshot from it and the piece that he had written was of the 13, what was it, senior members or senior management within that charitable trust, their average salaries or management fees was over $500,000 per person. Now, the one thing he didn't ask in that entire piece, bearing in mind that this is a charity, is how did the charity derive its income? Mm. Yeah. That was to me the gaping hole. And what else you thought? Yeah, I mean I guess what I thought reading it was 
if if you're involved in uh, helping people who are struggling, you have to have a fair bit of hide to take half a million bucks and not think about the opportunity cost of you taking that that grossly well, it's out of step with with other charities, which often you know there are plenty of charities that don't uh, maybe do as much as they should in terms of uh, the what actually reaches the coalface. But yeah, that's a lot of kids that um, that could have gotten reading recovery and been put on a different um, path in life. Um, it's uh, yeah, it, it uh, comes at a, a high cost, and, and you know he he. You know, did the usual dismissed any questions about it as being anti-Maori, and uh, and you know said it's a one-off, um, a one-off thing. Yeah, Tamahiri accused the Herald of running an anti-Maori po- pogrom. Now, pogrom it's a, a you know Soviet word for taking a group that's the enemy of the revolution and um, destroying them. So yeah, that that kind of language is is not helpful. No, no, it's not. And it was interesting, you know, that Josie Bacani, as the chief executive of Child Fund, came to his defence, saying if you compare the wages and salaries of cabinet ministers, frankly, wiped during the pandemic, thank God they got the vaccines out to Māori communities. They had to take the damn government to court to do it. Actually, Waipareta do a better job than the government when it comes to delivering services to Māori in Auckland. That's uh, interesting coming from a, a, uh, a lifelong Labour Party Stalwart, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's almost it's almost edging into that private charity would do a better job than socialised government, socialist government. Yeah, and I know also too. Karina Shields has a lot to sort of say around this. She, I know she's done a lot of work around um, the, those actual services that are delivered in the Waipareta Trust and how they derive their information in terms of delivering those services. Mm-hmm. And if it's and when you actually think that a lot of those services are derived on um, fee for service per individual, per what have you, again, how was their money derived and their income? exploded exponentially across that period of time. And one of the things that has not been seen as an accounting of that fee for service, that delivery for fee of of what was actually done. So I know there are people working on this and I will be watching in the background how that unfolds. But where this brings into a political sphere is, of course, you know, take his Waipareta hat off and put his management of the Māori Party hat on, you know, it's certainly very, very convenient for him to, whilst there is an ongoing investigation into uh, his sources of income within a trust that he's got his his, uh, control of, of the wheel, that there is uh, a lot of noise elsewhere. And I do wonder how much of this weaponization of Māori who have this free-floating anxiety, have this lack of meaning-making because they themselves are struggling to put food on the table and get a roof over their heads, something that Tamahiri does not have an issue with, but exploiting all of that and giving them something bigger to be fearful of. Yeah. Yeah, and, or a series of straw man arguments. And, yeah. and, you know, he said before, you know, in in – I can't remember how many years he said you you won't be um, 
governing these people will be governing them. And mm. and, and I, I've raised this before. I've written it in, in a, an opinion piece uh, that that's what traditional Maori society looks like. It's got rangatira, and it's got tutua or commoners, and it uh, and the the job of the tutua is to support the rangatira tanga. And um, then, you know, there's the tauraka or slaves. Um, and, and I think, in, in, and I've argued in the modern Māori model, that is non-Māori taxpayers who you can take the fruits of their labour without reciprocity. You can denigrate their whakapapa uh, because they're of such low mana. And when I hear a lot of these leaders talk um, and the way they dismiss the legitimate concerns of New Zealanders as racist rather than actually engaging with them in a uh, in a way of mutual respect. I can hear that, and uh, as I've said before, I think what maybe some Māoris uh, interpret as racism is actually just the visceral reaction of people with a proud history of uh, ending slavery and deposing despots to being spoken to like a slave by someone who seems to have pretensions to be a despot. Mm, indeed, indeed. And again, there is the media's portrayal that, again, Māori are speaking with one voice, and we know that that is yep. not true. And yep. the denigration of anybody who is Māori, i.e. Winston Peters, Shane Jones, Casey Costello. <laughs> but you look at those three, look, look at what they've tried to do. I mean, look yeah. at how they tried to smear Casey with this ridiculous tobacco lobby uh, yeah. disinformation campaign. You know, so they there is this, you cannot have uh, dissident, in their view, dissident Māori voices who actually happened to hold the democratic power that the people of New Zealand has instilled on them, you can, you, you've got to actually disenfranchise, you know, you've got to say that these people can, should not be listened to and this is why. Uh, and then you talk to people, you shared a conversation with me with a former local uh, government politician and senior police officer, and he had some, you know, very simple, blunt observations um, of what he sees, and he is, I think he's sort of on the money with a lot of this. So well, you want to share some of those? buying it. And, I mean, this is where, you know, we're getting this argument that te tiriti is totally different from the treaty. And as far as I can tell, and I haven't exhaustively studied it, it is uh, whether um, rangatiratanga means that the uh, John Tamahiris and Willie Jacksons get to rule the tutua or commoners um, in a tribal neo-feudalist kind of way, whereas uh, the English version basically means that people now have the right to own their own shit. They, they mm -hmm. get that Englishman's home is his castle right to be free from people coming and taking the fruits of their labour on a whim, and which is what I was saying about, you know, that people of um, British descent and French descent have, have had that proud history of deposing despots who would just, when they got short of cash, um, walk into the village with their knights and take it. Mm. It's all that proud history. You know, much as we get told that we don't have a culture, of the Magna Carta and, um, and, and those kind of deals that we finally did with kings, 
to curb that impulse to uh, authoritarianism. And also to the fact that, you know, we are in a democratic society and, you know, it's a very slippery slope if you want to go back from a, a societal point of view back into that tribalism. And I well, think we're assuming that that's what they want to do and that's the missing piece is mm. that these lily-livered journalists don't actually say to these uh, radicals or, um, you know, aspirant neo-feudalist leaders, what do you want? Mm. Talk me through it because I could talk through the future that I want for New Zealand and I would argue, I hope convincingly, that it would be better for Māori. Mm. A wealthier um, society that where its children are safer and better educated, where we produce really, really well-balanced, uh, well-educated, compassionate children. Uh, unfortunately, that aim doesn't fit with the aims of someone who's interested in a three-year electoral cycle. No, no. And uh, sort of speaking of sort of activists in that realm, one of the interesting interviews that I did see was, did you see Jack Tame interviewing Chloe Swalbrook over the weekend? Uh, again, I'm struggling to retox. <laughs> that would be, that would be um, my duathlon of toxic, toxic it- narcissism. I actually made my husband watch it. You can imagine how did that you? went down. I did. Did you have Did you have matchsticks in his eyelids? Uh, yeah, yeah. Was he strapped and tied to the chair <laughs> when it when it uh, when it? Oh, yeah. that clockwork orange scene. Yeah, it was interesting because I had heard you know someone had said to me, "You should actually have a look at this. It's uh, not what you might expect." So the first half of it was exactly what I expected, which and of course Chloe is uh, with James Shaw's resignation which to me completes any last resemblance that the Green Party has any interest in environmentalism whatsoever uh, with his his departure. So therefore it is now a fully fledged neo-Marxist communist (laughs) entity. Uh, So yeah, yeah. anywho, uh, of course, Chloe was, is, the presumptive heir apparent, but now a actually an environmental activist within the party uh, based in Dunedin has now thrown his hat in the ring. But I think it's uh, I actually think that's just a bit of a token quietly. But anywho, um, mm. to make to make it not appear that it was constructed, that's just my opinion. However, Chloe. Uh, I think was expecting to have a nice little easy ozy ride with uh, Jack, and Jack set a trap. Oh. And it was masterfully done. I couldn't believe it. And the most beautiful thing about probably halfway through that interview was the look on Chloe's face when she realised that Jack had set a trap and he'd sprung it and she'd walk straight into it. Do you want to play the clip? In November last year, speaking to a crowd of supporters, you led the chant, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. At the time you used that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider it deeply inflammatory, hateful and offensive? So if I may unpack the chronology of events that led up to my utilisation of that statement, we had previously heard at that rally from Dayenu. Uh, Dayenu is a group of uh, people from the uh, Jewish diaspora uh, who are opposed to the occupation and the genocide that is currently playing out in the occupied Palestinian territories. We had a member of the Jewish community speaking to uh, their life experience of having felt as 
as though they, in their own words, were indoctrinated and felt as though they had ideological blinders on and had fear of that statement alongside the Palestinian people. And that in coming to educate themselves and understand what had occurred in the history of, for example, 1948 with the Nakba and the displacement of the better part of a million people, mm. the many deaths and devastation that came with that, that they came to understand that Palestinian freedom and liberation did not have a prerequisite of violence. And that to hold to that view that Palestine will be free or freedom for Palestinians mm. somehow involves violence is an incredibly racist and problematic So, So that doesn't answer the question. When you use that phrase, were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory phrase? And I take my lead from Palestinian and Jewish peace activists. That doesn't answer my question. Were you aware that many Jewish people consider that to be a hateful and inflammatory statement? Yes, Jack, I am aware of the fact that there are many differing views you, on this. You, so you, at the time you used that statement, you were aware that many in the Jewish community considered it inflammatory and hateful. Not necessarily the people who were there, mm. but that many in that community considered it inflammatory and hateful. When you used that phrase, you were aware of that? Yes, and I want to talk to the broader okay. context. No, 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 I'll, I'll bring up the broader context. So your, your colleague, Ricardo Menendez March, used the phrase on social media back in 2021, and you were tagged in the post at the time. According to the New Zealand Jewish Council, after they expressed their concerns, you untagged yourself from that post. Is that correct? I don't recall. Is it true that after they expressed concerns, you met with students and teachers at the Karima Jewish School in yes. your Auckland Central electorate? People with knowledge of that meeting say you were told by the school in your electorate that that phrase was inflammatory and hateful and could even be interpreted as calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. Is that correct? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to recall the specifics of that, but I also recall that I continue to hold true to the kaupapa that Palestinian freedom is necessary if we are to have uh, long-standing peace and justice. I don't, don't think anyone is, is, is opposing that statement. It's whether or not using the phrase that you chose to use could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. So I, I want to know, when you had the meeting with the Kadima School in Auckland Central, people with knowledge of that meeting say you were told it was inflammatory and hateful. Mm -hmm. What do you recall? Uh, I recall that that was, yes, uh, along those lines, that would have been the views that right. were expressed. Right, so, so, so no, 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 hang on. So the Green Party has long expressed concerns about hate speech. Mm. Given the widespread and extremely well-documented concerns with the term that you used, do you believe it was hate speech? No, and if I may have a moment to unpack precisely that. As I was alluding to before, I believe that there is a deeply problematic and intentional misunderstanding that is being painted across the Palestinian people here, whereby there is some presupposition that freedom for Palestinian people who have been living under occupation for decades now and are presently being subjugated to a genocide, mm. we are talking about tens of thousands of people who have been murdered in the last few months, approximately half of them children, and we are talking about advocating for their freedom, and that freedom is being painted somehow as violence. No, see, this is, this is, the, this is the problem, right? It, you, you had an option when, when you were there, when you were speaking in public. You had been warned by Jewish people that the phrase could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. You'd gone to a meeting with a Jewish school in your electorate in which people in your own electorate had said that term could be interpreted as being inflammatory and hateful. And yet you chose to use it. You could have used an unambiguously non-offensive term in support of the Palestinian cause. 2468, Palestine should have a state. It is not so complicated. But you chose in that moment to use a term that is interpreted by many as being hateful. And perhaps that discomfort is something that we should lean into. 
Because again, I think that nowhere near enough focus has been paid to the genocide, which is literally playing out right now. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to your retalks. Yeah, gosh. And you notice you know, this is actually, I think, before the clip that you played, she described um, any pushback against her as reactionary. It's another mm. Marxist phrase. Well, she she actually referred uh, to her activism. Um, she views herself as an activist first. I mean, I generally, genuinely mm. believe that. What for me was uh, interesting in that clip, and I mean, if you want to have a look at that clip, play it from about nine minutes onwards. That's pretty much roughly where I started it, if you want to take a look. But she, she her facial expressions, she wasn't expecting that at all. You know, she's mm. obviously had... Hoisted her own petard. Yeah, she's had six years of breezing in and relatively yeah. straightforward interviews. Kudos to Jack Tame. Kudos to Jack Tame. I just would we have seen him conduct that sort of interview with her six months ago? Well, obviously not. There were a I few mean, things there that just worried me. One was the fact that she was quite prepared to accept that. Uh, what she said was hate speech as long and it's actually not hate speech if she agrees that her position is correct, which to me signifies the danger of any potential curbing of speech in legislation because that's the you know it when you see it mantra from dear leader uh, well actually do you because that just illustrated to me that no you don't know when you see it because it is so subjective that's a classic example mm -hmm. of why speech should not be legislated against and the second thing is is you know let's lean into this really chloe yeah chloe? <laughs> well it's yeah laws for thee but not for me and mm. also you in this, and I hate to characterize it as a fight, but it is a fight, we've got to keep remembering that we are often up against people for whom deception is a justified, justifiable uh, tactic because the ends justify the means always. And that might involve violence. It might involve deception. It, it might involve all sorts of you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, eggs comrade nonsense, uh, and and often very airy kind of sighing. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you uh, highlighted that interview with Guy Williams, mm. and that so full of that, wasn't it? Just this airy. Oh, if only people weren't so stupid. If only they they were like me. Yeah, and so what, what we're referring to there is a the feature piece in, I think it was Canvas, was it Canvas? The cover, no, Reset, and uh, I can't remember, I think it was Saturday Herald. Um, yeah, our kind of guy, and it was the cover story. And, yeah, it, 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 I, two things. One, it was probably two pages of the most patronising story I've ever seen in my entire life. And, uh, two, I don't know how many PR gods or, you know, the sacrifices had to be made by the PR gods um, to actually p get this out there and uh, paint this, try to paint this positive picture of Guy Williams. And it says to here, you know, is there a more fear, um, fiercely patriotic comedian than Guy Williams? And he's talking about, I describe myself as very woke, he says. I'm, known, I'm a known green sub 
party supporter from Central City, Auckland. I ride an e-bike to work most days. I harbour what's described as woke views. I I contrast with small-town New Zealand, which is normally the opposite of that, you know, shooting guns and none of that PC bullshit. You know, I mean, let's, let's... be, we couldn't be any woker and more sootyfied if we tried. And then, of course, he misses out the most important part that, I mean, I am assuming his partner is still Gloris Garriman. Well, yeah, no, that didn't make it. That, that, that didn't, that make, didn't make it into all. the story. And, you know, he's being interviewed by a guy who did an arts degree, or, you know, studied art and then um, did a journalism degree. So, you know, again, it's it's this little bubble and you can hear the characterization of anyone who's not in their bubble in this very who is being very threatening and just unenlightened and basic and Neanderthal. And we just need to we need to be patient with them and just, you know, explain how right we are. I mean, one of the bizarre things he said was, you know, he was talking about how people have ideas that diverge from his own worldview. They look at the world and the internet tells them everything's terrible and that spirals down a rabbit hole of what are we going to do, he answers, before giving the abortion issue as an example. People, he says, see nonstop anti-abortion stories that claim other people are murdering babies, so they begin to think that abortion needs to be repealed. Babies, of course, aren't being murdered, but that doesn't matter. They are taking in so much information that says they are and that shapes their thinking. When you look at their worldview and you see that they think people are murdering babies, you can kind of understand where they're coming from a little bit. I prefer not to have debates on abortion because, like a lot of things, I like to go upstream from it and Mm. wonder, well, why are women having sex with men who they know would be terrible fathers or, you know, not using readily available contraception? Uh, But I've seen three children born. And uh, they were right there, the way they are now in that moment. And that that really gave me pause for thought about being so glib about um, where life starts and that it starts once you've through that magic birth canal that confers humanity on you. Mm. But, yeah, I guess that gets weak socialist men laid having those views. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there is definitely a gentle shift, even if it is by a couple of degrees. And actually, it's a pity. This was actually something that um, before we, uh, while we were in the break, before we kicked into a political panel that we were actually discussing that uh, didn't, you know, wasn't uh, on on record. But we were talking about that sort of that slight shift. I think Donna, I mean, did she bring it up actually? Um, it was something that she had noted, her and Sue had noted in some of the illegal work that they were doing within the Freedom and Outdoors Party. And and I agree with her. You know, there is definitely a little subtle shift there. And with that subtle shift, just even by a few degrees, and we we saw it with Coglin, we saw it there with Jack Tame, even Andrea Vance in her post piece around what's left for the left, the existential um, exercise existential question Labour still needs to answer. You know, she's sort of seeing that Labour is no longer commands the skilled tradies who are now small business owners with little time for social justice debates or entrenched underclass of welfare recipients who don't get who won't get a job. You know, they're, they're starting mm. to actually glimpse the reality and say it out loud, which well, they weren't. 
yeah, just as National gets more polished and settles into the beehive, bored political journalists will come looking for trouble. That speaks to the earlier point that we made about, you know, the, the negative role that uh, the media is playing in terms of ginning up this racial tension, as Paul Brennan likes saying, ginning mm. it up. What troubles me, and this is something I closed, I guess, uh, our political panel with, is my idea of a zipper consensus. You know, while we're having these banging our heads against a wall arguments using straw men to, to focus our reasoning on, rather than having a conversation finding out what people actually think, while we're doing that, there's no outrage about the rate at which children are beaten to death or even worse, well, not worse, but, you know, neglected. Often neglect is, is uh, worse than abuse. The rate at which they're being failed by our unionised education system. Those are the areas where I feel outrage. Mm. I feel outrage that, you know, John Tamahiri can characterise anyone asking questions about why his uh, salary and the salary of 13 other people within his charitable trust suddenly rose to half a million each, rose by 77%, I think was the figure. Yeah, 77%. Um, you know, was that to pay back uh, the interest-free loan that he got for um, to party Māori's campaign? You know, so while, while he's able to characterise that as the as the most egregious thing that's happening at the moment and, you know, characterise David Seymour seeking to clarify what the treaty uh, principles actually are. Where's the outrage on all of those social issues that make us a lower trust society that's turning out children that are far uh, less mm. likely to bring as much light as they're capable of into the world? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Stephen Joyce uh, in his... Her Weekend Herald piece, Government Faces Challenges on Fixing the Budget. And in a way, he kind of starts to address this because Nicola Willis has got a huge job on her hands. Uh, she's got the job of a sorting out the absolute shit show she's inherited. But also, too, within that public service, she's got the job of rooting up the foxes that are in the hen house. And they've been in there, you know, growing significantly. Uh, total crown expenditure grew from thirty-one to 40, sorry, from thirty-six to forty-one percent of our whole economy over the past six years. That was that was incredible, wasn't it? That's a thirteen percent increase, and astounding. And that doesn't really speak to how much even a five percent increase eats up the marginal ability of a business to operate. Oh, by totally. taking that resource away from it that it might use to buy capital equipment or pay workers better or get better quality workers. It, it's a suck on the economy. Sorry to interrupt you. No, but, no, that's okay. You know, every time I've seen Grant Robertson's little soup slurping mouth, you know, moan about what the government's doing, I, I just have this just vision of him as an arsonist who's criticising the way the fire service are putting out the fires he started. Yeah, And, uh, and Māori saying, oh, we're missing the government, we've got to get back on track. Back on what track? Racking up $100 billion of extra government debt over six years? And, and you know, there's got to be an acknowledgement of how much popularity 
larding that $100 billion around with your pudgy little fingers has um, on your popularity. You can buy a lot of popularity with $100 billion. Oh, and I mean, the, the following paragraph, expenditure in the year to June 2023 alone was 83% higher than the same six years ago. These are phenomenal increases and should be Grant Robertson's political epitaph. Aside from the early COVID spending, never has so much been spent and so little achieved. You've got to ha- the hide you've got to have to front up and do that. It's, it's, it's amazing just watching that sort of narcissism in real time, isn't it? Oh, indeed. So it's sort of, uh, the, it then says, as Treasury Coily puts it, yeah. we need to move from a focus on defining performance purely in the terms of expenditure and outputs to one that incorporates the quality of delivery and results. The voters were well ahead of them last yeah. October. That, that's such a, uh, and, and there was some other area where that same, I think it was in Fran O'Sullivan's uh, article on the Wellington Club, where she said a period of transformation and upheaval for the public service as the Luxon cabinet insists on not only cutting costs across the board and redirecting resources to the front line, but achieving results like it's like a it's saying thing. the moon's made out of cheese, you know, it's kind of yeah. but yeah. but you know, the the other aspect of the way those bureaucrats think that is really worth factoring in and understanding and certainly offers some explanation for the failure of socialist governments and the public sector to deliver the pot of gold at the end of the equity rainbow is that if you're in business, you've got to keep your eye on the outcome you want. Um, So your policy is determined by the outcome. Whereas the way governments do it, it's more of a fire and forget thing. The, The policy determines the outcome. And so you've got all these policies that screw off away from any delivery of results, and that's okay because the emphasis is on following policy. And uh, this is where the growth of government has been so corrosive for New Zealand, just just that unchecked cancerous growth of government between us. And, you know, one of the points that I made in that political panel is one of the reasons that Trevor Bloody Mallard and... uh, dear leader, had to send in the goon squad to crush the protests outside parliament, is that you had a spontaneously developing society with 30% Māori, a mix of political persuasions that was self-organising, harmonious, picking up its own rubbish, looking after itself without government. They had to squash that. You don't want that that getting out. We don't need them. Right, but more than that, right under government's nose. And that actually brings to sort of how I want to finish off nicely because today is the one-year anniversary of Cyclone Gabrielle. And I shared a few thoughts earlier and and part of that was, and one of the things that I learned having, you know, gone through it, being in a situation where we were completely cut off from the rest of New Zealand from a communication perspective was it was actually the communities that are rebuilding. It's it's our own communities. It's the individuals. It's the people. People. It's the neighbours. It is the churches, the congregations, the the marae. It is all of these. It is the people power 
that is going is rebuilding Hawke's Bay, uh, one shovel load of silt at a time, and whether it be Hawke's Bay wide or um, east coast, really, despite government, I mean, government in those early stages were detrimental to the process, not positive. And, you know, there are still thousands of people that still haven't had assessments and, and it will be ongoing. And it is frustrating. Paula Bennett talked about the frustration that she sees in terms of the mindset, that Kiwi number eight wire mindset now no longer is there. She was in uh, Northern Queensland where they also have had a disaster and how quickly that they were just getting on with the job. And I, that's one of the things that I hope and some of the things that we hope here at Reality Check Radio is to have these conversations where we encourage ourselves to stand on our own two feet. And I think as you've just highlighted beautifully, as a community that a lot of our listeners are, we are those mm. sorts of people, that we are those people that create a functioning community under the nose of Parliament in Wellington. We're those people that get out there and help our neighbours and actually strip back all the politics and the identity and the bullshit and actually work it back at fundamental levels of right. Um, mate, how can I help? Yeah, well, and, and building consensus. Mm. And that's something that the media's utterly failed to do in all this. In fact, you got Janet Wilson's uh, column, and she um, positively recoiled from anything that could create an argument. Uh, she said referendum, referendums, it's actually referenda, I think, isn't it, Janet? Uh, such as the Treaty Principles Bill, are doomed to failure because the issue is politically sensitive and polarises a population with inflammatory debate. Well, I'm sorry, Janet, uh, just because it's not in your rag doesn't mean it's not happening. I'd rather see it happening between the parties rather than amongst each party behind behind the hands. Mm. Um, and, you know, I spoke about that idea of the zipper consensus you know, we're, before we get to this whole, well, what did uh, James Busby mean when he signed the Declaration of Independence or, or helped draft it? You know, stuff we can't know. Uh, let's sort of start at the bottom, shall we? We don't put out cigarettes on babies. Everyone good with that? And then we can move up. You know, after 10 years of state uh, education, Children should be able to read and write and do maths and think critically. Are we all up for that? And, and by the time we get to the things we actually disagree on, uh, we'll be in a much better position to actually hash them out in good faith. And that, that's that's why the conversation, as fractious as it was with Donna, uh, still works and still comes together in the end. I have, you know, albeit briefly, I spent a couple of days with her and I've spoken to her previous to this and I've got a pretty good understanding of where she's coming from. She's got a pretty good understanding of where I'm coming from and the regard I hold Māori in, you know, so so we can have some of those conversations and, and remain friends. And, and I think that's um, where Reality Check Radio, I hope to, to see it leading the way in that this year. And I'd Say to our listeners, you know, if you can think of someone who would be really good at offering a perspective on that, put them in touch with us. We'll talk to them with that in mind, you know, building that consensus, actually getting uh, getting getting some real discussion happening rather than this uh, lily-livered shrinking from it. And, you know, it's disappointing to see the way Christopher Luxon's 
shrunk from it, but you can understand why, because he's committed that cardinal sin that politicians can't commit, particularly with female reporters. You can't uh, either fail to give them the tingles, or worse still, you can't give them the ick, or if you're a woman, uh, you can't fail to remind uh, them of themselves, which is why Jacinda Ardern did so well as a 30-something lady who liked to, you know, like to go out and have a good time and probably talk about lip gloss. You know, oh, she's just me. I'll give her a real soft ride. But that guy is bald and I wouldn't want to, you know, be with, and he sort of, you know, maybe gives me the ick a little bit. I'm going to hammer him. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm just, I am, you know, it's, there is a couple of little degrees of momentum. I think the, the changing government has been a tacit, uh, unspoken, permission, I think, for a lot of people to start having conversations about things that they thought they couldn't talk yeah. about before. Yep. And, you know, those who live in the Guy Williams, Central Auckland, Chloe Swalbrook type bubbles, uh, you know, you you forget that all of those ones that live outside of your bubble do actually talk to each other and actually probably have more in common with each other across that zipper consensus than than you do in your rarefied bubble. So just, you know, don't don't be so alarmed or terrified when when things may actually change and hopefully hopefully we will start seeing a progressing um across the year and that's what we're here to do in media matters is it not marty well i hope so i, I hope so um and uh yeah it's an exciting year ahead and i, I said uh in another political panel we probably um need to keep you know holding ourselves to to high standards and Maybe not indulging ourselves in in, um, in in the way that people who feel that they are a voice in the wilderness can when they feel that they're not really being listened to. I think what we say uh, will have an impact. So it's it's vital that we maintain that humanity and compassion and um, and sensibility and and don't react to some yes. of the crazier stuff that's going to get crazier. Oh, yeah, totally. Hey, look, let us know what you feel, of course. Uh, 2057 is the text number. Inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. Marty and I love hearing what you think about what we've had to say this morning, and we've had a lot to say. And as he said, if you've got people that you think would be great ones to have, whether it be on the political agenda or even people that I get to talk to, uh, flick us a line. Um, we're always looking for great interviews and great people to talk to, and we've had some fantastic suggestions from our listeners and also remember as well if you want to keep hearing these conversations we are funded by the people for the people so if you do feel like throwing us a few shekels here and there do pop over to our realitycheck.radio website click the donation button and anything yeah any yeah buy some merch be the walking billboard but anything is appreciated and it does make a difference hey look don't go anywhere i pop over to la next to catch up with helen taylor from exodus cry here on counterculture with rcr but in the meantime uh, thank you very much marty i will do it all again next week oh thanks marie welcome back 2024 let's go totally thank you Have a great week everyone thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio do you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to? Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. 
or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'd love to hear from you, so connect with us today.